0: that's really what the timber wars are is a dialogue and you're going to get folks from all different across the spectrum who are going to view one thing as a, as an utter disaster and others as a, you know, a hopeful sign that things can progress forward. And that's, that's really kind of the overall gist of this last part is that we start with this really violent um, headline grabbing period of like the Cove Mallard protests. And then we end with, um, is there a piece to the timber wars? Uh, Is it too good to be true? I mean, as Marty Trilhas in the Lewiston Tribune wrote in 2017, which I include in the article, you know, are the timber wars over? Yeah. And the fact that he's asking that question in 2017 really indicates to you how long this road has been and how we haven't reached maybe that point of peace. (laughs)
1: Wild Place, a podcast about the wild people and places of North Idaho and Montana. I'm your host, Jack Peterson. Today we're talking one last time to Zach Hagedon, editor-in-chief of the Sandpoint Reader and author of a series of articles entitled Conservation, From the Timber Wars to Collaboration. The previous two episodes of this podcast explored the history of timberland conservation in America and specifically in our area east of the Cascades, which didn't get as much national attention as the physical and legal battles going on on the west coast in the 1980s. Today, Mr. Hagadon brings us out of that history right up to the present day. I began our conversation by asking about the conflict at the Cove Mallard area, perhaps the most dramatic front in the timber wars in Idaho.
0: Yeah, uh, so this is... This is generally regarded among the folks that I spoke with for the article series as really the the biggest flashpoint uh, of the so-called timber wars uh, site of the most vigorous protest uh, in the state of Idaho. And it it looked an awful lot like the kinds of things that we saw over in Oregon and Northern California, Um, you know, with, with the sit-ins, the, the tree sittings, the, you know, people sinking concrete blocks into logging roads and chaining themselves to the blocks and setting up barricades and things like that. Um, and, And this Cove Mallard is kind of the shorthand for that whole phase of the conflict. And that's uh, generally referring to an area east of Lewiston. Um, and it was described at the time in uh, you know, reporting by the Associated Press as one of the largest roadless areas in the contiguous 48 states. Uh, it's in the Nez Perce National Forest area, you know, kind of east of Lewiston, like I said. Mm-hmm. And the issue at that time, and this is in sort of uh, you know, 1993, was that Logging companies were trying to punch, you know, about 145 miles of roads through this area um, to carve out, you know, this is a quote from the from the AP uh, carve out scores of clear cuts totaling more than 6,000 acres. This was going to be a sizable timber operation in what people considered to be a really vital, pristine, rugged kind of wilderness area. And it wasn't just the Cove Mallard area in particular that they were worried about. I mean, it was definitely where, where a lot of this action occurred but it was where it sat in connection with everything else around it. So we'd had decades of sensitive areas kind of being put aside as, um, you know, as conservation became more of a policy goal and where Cove Mallard was and the Nez Perce was uh, kind of in the center of a, of a wildlife corridor that really linked like the Frank church river of no return, the gospel hump and the Selway Bitterroot wildernesses and That as a whole was something like 4.3 million acres. So the concern was, you know, you drive 145 miles of logging road through Cove Mallard and you set up 6,000 acres of clear cuts, you're going to damage not just this area, but you're going to impact this much larger uh, sort of ecosystem. And that attracted the attention of, you know, many groups, but, uh, you know, the one that made the most headlines was Earth First, which I think anyone with a passing knowledge of this period and and these conflicts— Will recognize as a uh, an environmental activist group that was regarded by some as very extreme, others as um, you know, committing the necessary sort of direct action to get in the way of these projects, which they couldn't see any other way around. You know, I mean the the, the lawsuit route had been used, but you know for for various reasons, nobody was getting what they wanted from the lawsuits, and we'll get to that later. Hmm. But Earth First was was a group that really took to the woods to bring the protest and the confrontation directly with the logging companies. And it made, you know, tons of headlines. It, it became emblematic of just how fierce the opposition had grown and, and how dangerous in many ways. I mean, there were there were physical assaults on activists. Um, there were you – know, activists were arrested. Uh, many went to trial. Some got jail time. Uh, and it should be noted, and it was noted by Gary McFarlane, who was an individual I spoke with for the piece, who had uh, you know has thirty years of uh, experience as an environmental activist, as a as a preservationist, and he was there at Cove Mallard. He was he was part of the coalition of groups that opposed that that timber sale and, and those operations. And he makes it very clear. Uh, and He's still angry today about these things. He's since retired, um, you know, from the from the environmental activist uh, game, I guess, or uh, from that scene. Uh, but he he remains very angry about what happened and he emphasizes that all the violence was visited against the activists. All the jail time was against the activists. Um, so that just shows you how visceral the feelings were at that time that, you know, this many years later, he still spe- speaks with a lot of passion and fire about, about what that represented. So that's what Cove Mallard was. It was, it was Idaho's own front on the timber wars that, that looked like what was happening over in Oregon and Northern California. Elsewhere in the state, people were were fighting these battles more, uh, you know, as a war of words. That this was much more of a, a hot war, <laughs> yeah. And and it, a lot of this story is trying to find these turning points uh, in, in the history, and this could be regarded as a as a critical moment, as a turning point, in that no one wanted to see that happening anymore. At least, you know, no one who who was on sort of the uh, the quote-unquote collaboration side mm-hmm. nobody who was on the in the timber industry side nobody in the government wanted this to go on um and so like i was saying earlier this this really was as gary put it a kind of a blip yeah um and, it, and it's unfair to characterize the whole process of the timber wars the whole sweep of it as entirely that kind of action because it, it it had more impact in the courtrooms which is really where mm-hmm. it goes after that. Yeah. I mean after the Northwest after Cove Mallard after the Northwest Force plan, um everybody gets the sense that like no one's winning. And yeah. and that's where it sort of progresses into what we would more readily see as the current situation that we have. I mean it's the really it's the kernel of where collaboration starts to become an actually effective tool as opposed to something people just sort of say.
1: So as far as that move into litigation that you mentioned what was developing in the courts at this time?
0: There were a couple of big court decisions, and I think the biggest one was from Judge Dwyer in Seattle. Judge Dwyer returns. I think I think we might have mentioned him in that
1: first part. If we didn't, he's a figure. Uh, he was very prominent in. He had the 1991 uh, ruling that halted all logging in the you know, to protect the spotted owl. If I'm not mistaken, right? He was the judge. I mean, the 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 main judge, the main federal figure who uh yeah who who shut down timber uh at least timber operations for the time being uh under his authority in on the west coast
0: yeah, and that that's really kind of the high point of the of the timber wars quote unquote in, yeah on the west coast so that would that was huge, and then other decisions of course delayed or held up timber mm-hmm. sales throughout the west. And that was kind of the case through the 90s is that, you know, mills were talking about how, you know, we can't we can't get out the cut, you know, which is Mm -hmm. which is an old phrase that we've talked about before from going back and earlier in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, And so there was this real sense that things were stalled. People were losing jobs. um, You know, the, the output wasn't there. And that's been sort of the popular narrative is that during this period of the 90s and into the early 2000s, timber production was in the tank. Um, communities were drying up, losing jobs, people were being, you know, laid off. And that is true to an mm-hmm. extent. Um, but as as with everything, uh, it's more complicated if you dig a little bit deeper. Is there really a no-cut
1: movement or is that more of a boogeyman for the timber companies to point to?
0: There are certainly people out there who think that yeah. and groups who have that as part of their goals. Mm-hmm. But even... Even back in the nineties, <clears throat> there were groups that were starting to abandon that perspective, yeah because they they realized that it was not productive yeah. um, you know literally and figuratively that um you know it, it wasn't a realistic view to hold, and that you had to work with a multi use system yeah um it sounds to me anyway, based on what I've been able to, to find over the course of the of these articles is that the no cut perspective it really doesn't come to the table anyway, yeah. Because why would it? It's not part of the collaborative process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, no, I, I think it's a fairly marginal view uh, it, that still exists and still generates litigation. Uh, and, you know, there there are folks that I spoke with for this article that were concerned that they were seeing an upswing in litigation that was sort of coming from that place. Might not be exactly... Like a no-cut, get rid of the timber industry argument, yeah. but it falls closer to that on the spectrum than they were used to seeing in, in you know the past decade or so, and so there is some fear that that may be coming back in, in some mm-hmm. ways, but you know this is not really history at this point. You know, like the 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 previous two pieces in this series were very much grounded in history. This is still happening. Um, you know, even the things that we talk about in the early '90s, we're still reaping kind of the the whirlwind. From, from that stuff. And it's still very much informing the conversations that we have and the way that we view these policies. I mean, most of the people that were involved are still alive. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's also very different for this piece than the others is that the vast majority of the people who were around and, and engaged in these things and had these conversations at the time are still with us and, in many cases, still in the same positions, yeah. or at least in the same industries.
1: There is a narrative that's developed around the negative effect of the environmental movement on jobs, a narrative that your piece calls into question.
0: Yeah. So um, right around the same time as, you know, Cove Mallard was happening and the Northwest forest plan was coming out and people were filing lawsuits and, you know, the Dwyer decision was, was out there uh, at that same time, you know, we had the national or the North American free trade agreement uh, that sort of became a political football especially for folks on the far right at mm-hmm. the time uh, and, you know, representative uh, Helen Chenoweth Haig, uh, who was a Idaho U.S. rep, really seized on NAFTA as a boogeyman <clears throat> saying that it was, you know, exposing U.S. markets to subsidize Canadian timber that was, that was able to undercut U.S. suppliers. And at the same time, everybody's being held up by all these, you know, quote unquote, environmental radicals, these, you know, these wackos in the woods trying to destroy the American economy Uh, And she married that issue with an awful lot of other kind of ultra-conservative hobby horses. Stuff like, you know, the United Nations is going to take our land. Um, She famously doubted the endangered status of uh, salmon. Mm -hmm. Which, as we've talked about before, you know, Idaho doesn't have spotted owl territory. The the animal doesn't live here. But we have, you know, the quote-unquote spotted fish. Yes. And so that became our spotted owl species, you know, that we needed to protect. And so that affected... The, uh, where and how and when people could harvest timber. So uh, Chenoweth, Haig, hey, she made it a big political point to say, you know, in, how can salmon be endangered when you can go down to Albertsons and you can buy a can of it? Yeah. And, of course, that's, you know, completely disingenuous because that, those are coastal salmon and, you know, we're talking about inland salmon that spawn in Idaho and yeah. go down the rivers and there are a whole host of reasons why they don't make it to the, to the, to the coast. Um, from dams to, you know, streamside uh, problems to pollution, you name it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, she she becomes sort of the poster person for doubting any environmental regulations, saying everything's overreach. And at the same time that, you know, the left wing Clinton administration is trying to destroy industry by uh, allowing it to be outcompeted by Canadians and et cetera, et cetera. And this becomes a really powerful narrative in a lot of the the timber communities throughout the West and, and in Idaho, you know, strongly. Where, you know, it's Clinton's fault, it's the environmentalists' fault that, you know, I got laid off or my dad got laid off or, you know, Mm -hmm. you name it. Well, there were mills closing and there were jobs being lost in great numbers. But the reality was different from what the politicians like Chenoweth Haig and others were saying. And in the book, um, Pushed Out, Contested Development and Rural Gentrification in the U.S. West, which was published this year to much acclaim, Mm -hmm. Among planners and economic development types, uh, by Professor Ryan Pilgrim of the University of Idaho, she's a sociologist and a Sandpoint High School graduate. Yeah, go Bulldogs! That's right. Um, She really dug into these numbers, you know, because she she grew up here. She was she was a student at the same time I was at Sandpoint High School, and so we you know we were aware of these issues as they were happening. Um, And she'd always heard this story, right, that that NAFTA and you know the the environmental litigation around the spotted owl, and you know, had ground timber harvest to a halt, and the timber industry died, and it was the death knell of all these rural economies, and that opened the way, of course, for like the gentrification that we're seeing today. You know, mm-hmm. as these economies revert or convert from a resource base to a tourism based, or you know, something like that, resort communities uh, replace. Um, uh, commodities, communities. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she, uh, she actually pulled the data, which I, I don't know that anyone's ever really done with the depth that she did. And she found, you know, that the number of mills fell during these time periods. However, the board feed output increased dramatically yeah. in some cases. And, and, and depending on where they were, I mean, mill employment fell 2% per year during the 1980s is the figure yeah. that she, that she came up with. Uh, but production rose by the same percentage. So there's fewer workers in the mills, but their labor productivity went up 3.1 percent per year between 1975 and 1996. And the reasons for that, which has been backed up by a lot of other social scientists and people who've crunched the, these numbers and looked at what was actually happening, was that the mills themselves were becoming more technologically advanced. They weren't requiring as much, um, you know, human power as they once did. Uh, they were feeling crunched and threatened by litigation and by these trade policies, but Their reaction was to, you know, become more techno-driven. Yeah. And require less human resource. So they cut people off. And you don't have to pay the machines as much. Yeah. Um, A lot of them relocated to the South, Mm -hmm. which today still has a a fairly robust timber industry. Um, So moving away from the region to get away from the controversies. In the South, you know, there was nothing like this. Yeah. They didn't have timber wars like we did in, in the American South. So it was a combination of, you know, physically relocating the mills and making the mills more technologically advanced and also consolidating them. Yeah. Uh, It was difficult just for the economies of scale for smaller mills to continue operating. So big mills bought them up. Yeah. And if they didn't need it in that location, they closed it down, gave everybody their pink slips, and then moved on. So Mm -hmm. the narrative, like I was saying, was, was sort of crafted- to support a notion that there was this vast kind of conspiracy, right, between between the liberal Democrat uh, White House and the liberal environmentalists who are destroying your way of life. Yeah. Um, but really it was the mills um, responding to economic factors and trying to preserve profit margins. And while they did so, you know, they did reduce workforce, but they were still pumping out board feed. And if you're talking about job loss, it wasn't because – these mills are being driven out of business necessarily it was because they're being gobbled up by big mills. They were no longer needing those, that number of workers or they were just physically moving themselves to another region of the country um, where they could make it operate, you know, in what they considered a safer, more stable environment.
1: One person of particular local import here in the Sandpoint area and North Idaho was our former state representative, uh, Sean Keogh. Who
0: is she? Well, Sean Keough is very, very much still active in yeah. state politics. She actually, uh, she was a senator. Um, she was a senator from Idaho uh, District 1, covering Bonner and Boundary counties. Uh, she was there for 22 years. Left office in 2018 as the longest serving female senator in the state's history. Now, today, she serves on the Idaho State Board of Education, <clears throat> and uh, she's been involved in the timber industry for decades. Uh, today, she serves as the executive director of the Associated Logging Contractors, Um, so she, her experience sits right at kind of the nexus for a lot of these things. I should also add, you know, that she spent 12 years working uh, with the greater standpoint chamber of commerce, which is sort of where she started Mm -hmm. out. It was her work uh, with the chamber that kind of prompted her to run for, for state house in 96. And so looking at her biography, you can see that she sort of comes from a place where economic development, um, you know, the timber industry and the legislative process all meet. And she has always been regarded as a legislator that kind of takes a, a broader view. She's not a she's not a fire breathing partisan. Um and really kind of exemplifies in many ways the collaborative spirit of, you know, we may not agree and probably don't. Um, but we still need to get around a table and we need to talk civilly and get the get the stuff on the table that we all want and then figure out how we can get there. And people are gonna have to give up things and they're probably not gonna be happy about it, but you know you don't compromise with your with your friends right <laughs> mm-hmm. so and, and that's definitely the way that she kind of looks at this longer term history and this being that she entered politics right in the middle of all this i mean she got into she got into you know the timber industry she got into the chamber stuff and then also legislature in the late 80s and, and into the 90s so she was right there in the thick of it too but in from a different perspective from a you know economic development from a government from a um, and from an industry perspective and today she serves on the state board of education so she's still very much active and she does come from an industry perspective of course i mean she she characterizes you know the view of the national forest system and of public lands as being Um, Mm multi-use and that includes you know recreation that includes conservation for environmental and ecological reasons but it also very much includes timber cutting yeah so she she definitely would not um fall on the side of you know no cut (laughs) yeah Uh, but she, but she looks toward you know a balanced management of those different interests. Uh, what is the Quincy Library Group? So this is a, a, a truly fascinating thing, and I wish I'd had a lot more time to write about this or a lot more space. Um, <clears throat> but it was a it was a group that formed in California, and it was in you know sort of the mid to late nineties, and <clears throat> kind of keying into a lot of the uh, unproductive conflict that was occurring during that time. It was a. A collection of folks who came from industry, who came from conservation, uh, who came from government. And they looked around and they said, this is not, hap- this is not serving anyone. Mm-hmm. We need to start, in, an, you know, in a sense, collaborating. right? And recognizing that the tensions were so high and there was you know, the potential for a lot of, you know, if not violence, then very unproductive conversations, they decided to meet in a neutral space. Mm-hmm. And that was the library in Quincy, California, which is a very small little town. Yeah, and they became known as the Quincy Library Group, and they're they're regarded by and large as the true first collaborative that was working on these issues to, to come out of of you know so the Timber Wars yeah. writ large. And one of the people that I spoke with and was very grateful to speak with for this piece was Alan Harper, and he's the director of Forest Operations for the Idaho Forest Group. And he was one of the first folks involved in this group. And what they did was, you know, they got together and they had the kinds of really hard conversations that collaboration, true collaboration requires. Um, and I, I read this great High Country News article from 1997 uh, that it began something like, uh, you know, if, if one wants to attend the Quincy Library Group meetings, then the first thing they have to have is a strong bladder. Mm-hmm because the meetings would go on for just hours and hours and hours. I mean, they were doing mm-hmm. like the hard work of really parsing through the issues, disagreeing, coming to some kind of, you know, compromise, figuring out who's willing to give what, um, you know, just like real collaboration. And and they did this hard work to come to a piece of legislation that, um, that they actually managed to get into the house of representatives. And it was the, the Quincy Library Group Forestry Recovery and Economic Stability Act of 1997, and that sounds mm-hmm. really unsexy and mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> abstruse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was pretty—it was pretty groundbreaking uh, for its time, for what and for what it tried to do. And it was trying to establish, you know, a five-year program that would protect spotted owl, you know, so satisfying that, mm-hmm. um, and riparian areas, so satisfying sort of. The, the non-spotted owl territory concerns because, yeah. you know, in, in Northern California and um, you know, Western Oregon, those places, the spotted owl country, they were concerned about the spotted owl. Outside of spotted owl country, we were concerned about the fish mm-hmm. and other sort of aquatic life forms. So riparian areas became, became the big issue. So mm-hmm. here we have in this act, proposed act, um, five-year programs to protect both spotted owl and the riparian areas and then also thin 40,000 to 60,000 acres per year in these three California national forests to do fuel reduction so that we could mitigate against forest fires. So then you're throwing, you're throwing Mm -hmm. a bone to the timber industry, you know, saying like, okay, you can, you can cut in these national forests, but it's going to be also in service of this sort of larger goal of reducing fire, which really feeds into the original mission of the forest service, uh, which was regarded as a national fire service. Yeah. Um, And then they also remove 49,000 or 494,000 roadless acres from future road construction or logging. So then you've got another sort of bone you're throwing. It's like, okay, you know, we're going to protect the we're going to do the spotted owl in the riparian areas for 5 years. We're going to let timber get into 40 to 60,000 acres of these national forests each year mm-hmm. and they can thin so they can have output. And then also we're just going to take almost 500,000 acres off the chopping block for anything future. Like mm-hmm. no 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 roads, no logging. Yeah. So this tries to hit all these different areas and it's the first real piece of legislation that we see trying to do that. Yeah. And it gets through the house and it dies in the Senate. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, you know, that's kind the of the story of our time. Yeah, well, yeah. Or yeah, it's sometimes reverse of that, um, Yeah, but it kind of shows you just sort of where the, the, the house was at that time. I mean, yeah. It, or, I mean, well, the Senate was at that time. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it, it just didn't have the stomach for that kind of legislation. They were bigger fish to fry. I'm not sure. But despite the fact that that didn't, uh, really come to fruition you know alan harper uh you know he comes right out and says you know the greatest significance was it opened channels of dialogue um and his quote to me was i don't know if we actually resolved anything but we started talking to each other and that's that's critical for that time period is that it showed that you could get together with people whose interests you know were you know against yours maybe uh, but you could find ways to go forward and craft legislation that that kind of satisfies all these different angles and having that example, I think, was just as powerful as if, you know, the act had, well, if the act had been passed, it would have been pretty powerful. But, yeah. <laughs> but as an object lesson, it really was uh showed that you could, you could do this process and it could have results. Yeah. And if you did it even better and if you work even harder, then you might be able to get over the, the hurdle and actually get some of this stuff enacted. Yeah. Um,
1: what's the significance of Quincy, California? Why'd they end up at the library there?
0: small town that was Mm -hmm. uh, near the nexus of a, of a number of California national forests where, you know, timber wars uh, actions were taking place. Yeah. Um, It was kind of representative of the sort of town that felt really besieged by this time period. I mean, it was not a whole lot unlike Sandpoint. I mean, it wasn't a resort town in any way, but it did rely very heavily on its timber industry. Yep. Um, So, you know, Alan Harper, he, he says, you know, I don't know that we uh, accomplished anything, but at least we started talking. Mm-hmm. And you can really see that as kind of a flash of collaboration amid, you know, a lot of flashes of conflict. Um, and it also sort of goes to show that this is not a linear story. There is no, like, starting from a place of conflict and reaching a place of collaboration. Yeah. Like, it, that's not how it works. Um, so you have the Quincy Library Group giving this great example of how you can get together and really hash out differences doesn't go anywhere you know ultimately through the senate mm-hmm. but still there's there's some hope there right and in a traditional narrative where you go from one point a to point b that would be like and then it was all great from there people built on it and it was wonderful well yeah. that doesn't that's not the way it happened um 2 years later in 1999 uh, judge dwyer in seattle um, made a ruling that the forest service and the blm the bureau of land management had not been doing their part adequately to, you know, do the surveys and the monitoring that they were required under, you know, the forest plan. They weren't doing the wildlife surveys and they were giving logging permits in old growth forests in Washington, Oregon and California without properly following their procedures. So he was going to shut down logging again. And this sent Mm -hmm. everybody into a tizzy and the New York times in 99 in August says, you know, the quote, the region's timber wars are flaring up again. So this was kind of like, Everybody who had been through the previous sort of 10 years, 15, 20 years, Mm -hmm. they were maybe starting to feel like, okay, things are going to start moving forward. We're going to move past this period. And then they see this ruling, and it just felt like we're going back to 1991. Uh We can't do this again. Now we really need to start coming to the table. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that the Quincy Library group um, started all that. It was an example, but it was a critical example that came right at this Another turning point where people realize that that's the way we need to go. Yeah. We can't keep going the way we've been going because we're just going to keep running into these sort of, like, uh, legal obstacles. Uh, so it's time, to, it's time to get serious about collaboration. And that's really where you start seeing, at the beginning of the 21st century, um, people really putting some skin in the game and groups dropping some of their um, their no-cut kind of ideas as they go into the 21st century Mm -hmm. and starting to get a lot more willing to, to reach across the table and, you know, get, get in the room with some of these people that normally they wouldn't have even wanted to look at. (laughs) Yeah. Who and what
1: is the Idaho conservation league?
0: That group had been around since 73. Uh, It had been involved with, uh, you know, establishing the Frank church river, no return wilderness. Uh, It was part of the Idaho clean lakes and water quality act, worked on the Idaho forest practices act in the nineties. Um, and it got itself involved in sort of joining other collaborative efforts in the state um, that would see actual policy change as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, noble efforts. You yeah. Know? But this was like actually getting stuff finished on the ground. Mm-hmm. And they had a big victory in 2008 with uh, the Hawaii Kenyan lands. Mm-hmm. And that, that wasn't a timber thing. That was mining and grazing. But that brought in all kinds of, you know, conservative lawmakers. It brought in industry folks. It brought in conservationists, and it succeeded. And this was a big deal, the Owyhee Canyonlands Wilderness Bill. Um, and that actually came about in 2009. Um, but it it was a great example of how you could really get a, a collaborative effort that achieves its goal. Um, and then you get the Idaho Roadless Rule in 2008, so around the same time they were working on the Owyhees, They got the roadless rule and that establishes uh, a whole tiered system of management for the forest service only in Idaho. So this is interesting. There's an Idaho specific piece of, of legislation. Yeah. Um, where certain areas can be marked off for like, okay, this use is okay here. This use is okay here. This use is okay here. And it goes from everything from like, uh, what is it? wildland recreation to primitive areas, you know, primitive being like, don't do a thing. Yeah. Uh, special areas of historic and tribal significance, Backcountry slash restoration, general forest, rangeland, and grassland. Yeah. So now you're starting to manage on a case-by-case basis, which is something that, um, you know, J.O. Laughlin, who I spoke with for previous articles, mm-hmm. says was really an outgrowth of sort of the Northwest Forest Plan and then the subsequent offshoots was you really have to start managing on a on an acre-by-acre, maybe not that tight, but <laughs> mm-hmm. but on an area-by-area basis. And that's where you're going to find opportunities for collaboration is you start working on specific chunks, that's a lot easier to digest than a blanket rule mm-hmm. that's going to come down on a huge landscape. Yeah. So that becomes good. So between the roadless rule in 2008 and the Hawaii's initiative in 2009, the folks from the Idaho Conservation League, uh, Brad Smith in particular, from the North Idaho director, says mm-hmm. you know he sees that as a turning point, especially in Idaho. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the groups that are involved in that, gr- that effort become involved in subsequent collaborations that occur going into the sort of the second decade. Of the 21st century, which is, you know, weird, weird to think that we're finally in this story coming to where we are today. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Who and what is the Panhandle Forest
0: Collaborative? That group is a, sort of a broad based uh, conservation slash industry group. And mm-hmm. so the Idaho Forest Group is, is a is a key component of that. Um, interesting. For many reasons, one being that it's the second largest purchaser of federal timber in the United States,
1: yeah, I get, yeah I get, we should mention, yeah, the Idaho Forest Group is the uh for those who don't know that's well yeah the largest purchaser of timber, and it more or less represents the timber industry's side of this, I suppose well yeah. the second biggest and i yeah. I, did,
0: I didn't get a chance to include mm-hmm. this in the piece, but Alan Harper told me that the first biggest purchaser of federal timber is a uh, turkey federation. <laughs> In the south. Really? Yeah. And well, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of geared toward, you know, turkey habitat. Yeah. And and they do a lot of reclamation and things like that. And they, so they, they purchase more timber than the Idaho Forest Group, but they're not, (laughs) they're not necessarily in the timber business. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if that's, that's, (laughs) That's well, that's very interesting to me. I don't know. That might be neither here nor there. Yeah. (laughs) But the Panhandle Forest Collaborative, uh, you know, it gets going in 2008, 2009. Um, Mm -hmm. And it, and it incorporates, you know, Idaho Forest Group, which, you know, in previous decades would be kind of unheard of mm-hmm. to have a big, big timber company uh, of its own volition joining a collaborative effort. Yeah. And it incorporates also the Idaho Conservation League. Um, and then it brings in Friends of the Scotchman Peaks Wilderness and the Lands Council. Um, and those are groups that you, like I say, would never have probably put in a room 15 years prior. Yeah. Uh, but here they are. Um coming together and they enjoyed a, a much higher level of trust than previous collaboratives. Cause they'd all kind of been on different collaboratives before, even when they didn't work mm-hmm. out, yeah. they knew each other. So they had formed relationships. They had, they had formed a collaborative network, yeah. which is where this group really drew its strength. Um, and Alan Harper, you know, he, he says, you know, the good thing was we all knew each other <laughs> from mm-hmm. other collaboratives. Uh, and he knew that, you know, they wouldn't always agree, but I knew that they would never backstab me and they would listen. Yeah, and that I think is a critical summation of the of the overall trajectory that this this collaborative effort took, you know, in those in those thirty years or whatever, um, mm-hmm. in the late 20th century and early 21st century. And what they've been able to do, and they and they continue to do this work, is do the stuff that collaboratives do, mm-hmm. um, trying to find tradeoffs, trying to find how you know we can we can tweak a timber sale so that it meets this need, or how we can find a, a you know a, a conservation effort over here that the timber industry can support. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the timber industry in the form of Idaho Forest Group will support things like, you know, the Scotchman Peaks Wilderness um, mm-hmm. and other wilderness designations. And Harper, you know, he makes the good point. He's like, well, you know, I like these areas. Like, yeah. I like to recreate in them. Uh, I like to have a wilderness to go through that isn't being clear cut. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of a, a recognition of, of a shared interest in on that angle too. And that's where recreation more so than maybe timber cutting at this stage in the game has become the real big front in the conversations around conservation and you know conflict and collaboration yeah which is kind of where we get to sort of the, the summary of the whole thing
1: yeah the the final analysis i guess um with the it's a, i mean it and it ends not on uh not necessarily triumphant but at least a positive hopeful note um, the, or as, as we are right now could go, who knows where it'll go, but at least it seems like people are talking to one another and compared to, you know, 1993, when it was, when people were going to the hospital and going to jail, uh, now I don't think even people who are on opposite sides of this issue, uh, I don't think would even, you know, they might walk past uh, if they happen to be in the same coffee shop, they might not sit next to one another. But I don't even think they would uh, they would get up and leave. You know, <laughs> they can share kind of the same uh, the same space in the same community peacefully without uh, coming into any anything approaching that kind of conflict.
0: Right, and and the examples are, are out there beyond even, you know, the Panhandle forest collaborative. I mean, we still have, we have the Idaho forest restoration partnership, which I forgot to mention. And that aside from just being a collaboration is a network of collaboration. Mm -hmm. So this is like a a collaborative among collaboratives, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, it's got trout unlimited Idaho conservation league, Riley Stegner and associates, nature conservancy and society of American foresters. Also, again, a very disparate group. Yeah. And that's a great example. Um, that goes forward into sort of the different areas people can move. I mean, we've Mm -hmm. got, again, you have timber, you have conservancy, you have, you have riparian interests. You've got, you got sort of the gamut there. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that there aren't people who still say this is a bad model. I mean, again, our old, you know, Gary McFarlane, who, who who looks very askance at this. He says, well, what this does is it puts the elite people in charge of decision making. Mm -hmm. And that's an argument that he makes, but, There's another argument people make that's like, well, I mean, people can join the collaborative if they want. Yeah. And one of the criticisms that Alan Harper has of a lot of the litigation that's occurring today is that it's coming from outside organizations. You know, groups that aren't even trying to be a part of the collaborative process. They're just lobbing lawsuits in and they're kind of gumming up the works or uh, damaging agreements that have already been made within the collaborative. Yeah. So that's a challenge that goes forward, not to mention the, the larger political challenge of this Huge rush among some ultra-conservatives to make public lands a, um, you know, again, a a political football. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had our own uh, District 1 senator, Scott Herndon, who just won uh, in the general election not long ago, Mm -hmm. who has made, you know, returning, quote-unquote, public lands to the states a big part of his, uh, his platform, and then even talks about selling off public lands to private industry. Uh, so that attitude, which we've talked about going back even to the 1950s, um, is still alive and well and, and very well expressed and loudly expressed by a lot of folks from the state level all the way to the federal level. Yeah.
1: I. Speaking of returning, quote unquote, the land to the states, I think you've, we touched on it in episode one, but I, I think you had a pretty clear um, perspective on kind of the fallacies that that uh that argument entails as far as you know the the idea that these lands by right belong to the state of idaho not to the federal government it's-
0: yeah i mean the the folks that i spoke with including adam sowards at university of idaho who's a public he's a um an environmental historian mm-hmm. directs the pacific northwest studies center uh he's very clear looking at the history he's like these lands never belong to the states the, you know, the national forests, you know, the, these federal public lands were established by Congress and put under the authority of Congress to administer on behalf of the American people. Mm-hmm. So the argument that they were somehow taken from the states uh, doesn't really hold historic water. Um, so this argument is much more of a hobby horse than it is an actual uh, legitimate policy goal. And even people like Alan Harper, you know, Idaho Forest Group, from you know, coming from the industry side, even he uh, sort of like looks down on this idea as being unrealistic. Um, and I think that's interesting too. That you, I mean, you see the, how far the the, the timber industry has come uh, to the point where, and Alan considers himself a quote, very right-leaning person, mm-hmm. but he sees this as uh, an example of people being whipped into a frenzy by our fine politicians. Um, <laughs> and so he says, I can definitely be mm-hmm. in the middle on conservation because we need to have a balance which is why I've always supported the collaborative process. And I think that's a critical quote yeah. is that notion of trying to find balance and also the notion of trying because collaboration is not a goal, right? And yeah. I think the you know, Idaho Conservation League, uh, I think Brad Smith said this to me, it's not a goal, right? Uh, it's a tool and it only works as a tool if you have all the nuts and bolts. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a crucial part of the whole story of timber wars from conservation to col- or from conflict to collaboration, um, is that it's not the end goal. It's a piece of policy making apparatus. And to get to it has required this huge whipsaw of conflict and collaboration, conflict and collaboration, fixing something. And then that fix creates the need for another fix, which creates another conflict, which creates another need for a fix. Mm-hmm. It's an iterative process, I guess is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And, the notion of conservation, which is actually the the real title, we keep talking about this as the Timber Wars, but the the actual title is that's right is <clears throat> conservation mm-hmm. from the Timber Wars to collaboration. Yeah, and the Timber Wars happen to be sort of this this convenient nut that we put in the middle of the story. And what I've tried to do throughout this series is to somewhat decenter that and make the Timber Wars not the the whole story. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole story goes back, you know, to that first stuff that I wrote about in the eighteen hundreds. And it flows through, like I say, these sort of ups and downs, this teeter-totter to where we come to a place where, where a lot of these people who never would have spoken with each other um, in previous decades can agree that this is a process. This is not something that we all sit down and one person tells us what to do. Like it, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a toolbox. And I think that might be the hopeful part, but it also has to be recognized that this is a, a very fragile thing. And if the history has shown us one thing, it's that these alliances, these collaborations, and these attitudes um, can change, can fall apart, um, can be like mortally challenged by large outside forces. So, we have yeah. collaboration if we can keep it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess is 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 maybe uh, how you might think about where we are today after all that history, and you know. The people who, who are engaged in this, what they're trying to do is, as the last words of the piece say, um, find a path forward.
1: So this saga has moved across the 1990s from and into the 2000s from direct, sometimes violent action and litigation. And now we see further de-escalation uh, into open dialogue and conversation outside of the courtroom. But it seems to me to some extent that the conservation activists were winning some of those big Court decisions.
0: Why not just keep pushing in the courts? So one. So the idea here about litigation and whether or not that's a a, a critical tool in yeah. this in this whole thing. The the trade-off here, and I want to say it was Brad Smith mm-hmm. who was talking to me about how you use up a lot of political capital mm-hmm. when you litigate. Um, and during the. Timber Wars proper, uh, you know, that, that sort of 80s and 90s, a lot of the groups, the conservation groups, the environmental activist groups, um, according to according to a lot of people anyway, um, had spent their political capital fighting Yeah. in the ways that they were fighting. Whether it be in the courtroom or in the forest uh, as a direct action or as a lawsuit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and lawsuits don't necessarily build political capital either. Uh You run a lot of risk when you when you go to court, right? Mm-hmm. I mean if you lose, then you have damaged your political capital right you have You have lost that particular battle and mm-hmm. why and people become leery of supporting you in your future endeavors now if you 're winning all the time that 's a different story, but as you say, like judges don't always rule the way you want them to mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so litigation. Like any tool, right, can be overused, and according to some people, it was overused by a lot of these groups to the point where it was exhausting. It's expensive. Yeah, it scares off funders and backers, and you know, as foundations came to play a, a much larger role in funding a lot of these conservation groups, I mean, they're going to be pretty risk averse, mm-hmm. you know, with their foundations' money. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you you see a move away from that litigation focused approach. Um, kind of toward the end of the 90s and into the early 2000s for those reasons, is that it's a risky thing. Um, You risk your political capital, you risk your money, you risk your foundation support. Um, And so a better way is to build your political capital by getting in the room with your supposed opponents, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and building that credibility with them and then among your own membership as you are able to deliver actual results. Um, that have a higher chance of succeeding. They may not succeed exactly how you want them to, but again, it's an iterative process. Like you build on these things. Like you might start, you know, with a small compromise that builds into a wilderness designation Mm -hmm. or a roadless area rule Mm -hmm. or something like that. I mean, if people don't feel like they can talk to you without getting hit with a lawsuit, they're probably not going to talk to you. (laughs) Yeah. Before we wrap things up, uh, let's talk about how forest
1: fire is affecting the relationship between the timber industry and the conservation movement today.
0: Well, fire runs through sort of the whole story yeah. of, of, of how the national forest service was founded. That's true. We, yeah. I mean, we talk mm-hmm. about, we talk about sort of the early, early 1900s when people were super skeptical about mm-hmm. why we need a federal agency that's going to come out into quote unquote our woods yeah. and tell us what to do. And, a lot of times, you know, those, those federally uh, employed foresters were looked at askance by communities like, you know, Sandpoint, Bonner County in the early, mm-hmm. like, first 10 years, first 15 years, we'll say. Well, first 12 years yeah. of the 20th century until we start seeing, th- you know, the, the big burn. The big burn, yeah. And that's where a lot of people will trace sort of like the beginning of the Forest Service as a, as a nationally, you know, sort of respected, solidified um, agency. Yeah. And it's as a national fire service that it achieves that, that level of respect among you know, these small communities. So no longer mm-hmm. are they being seen as East Coast eggheads coming out to tell uh, you know, timber companies and, and private property owners how and where and when to cut their timber. They're becoming people who are like, these guys are here to save our forests, you know, make sure they're healthy mm-hmm. and they don't explode in fire or you know, collapse into disease. So that goes from the beginning yeah. of this whole thing. And one of the arguments that is, you know, was, was made by the Quincy Library Group, you know, was, you know, we need to be able to thin these forests. Mm-hmm. For So that's why the fuels reduction component of that of that act that they tried to pass in 97 was included. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that was one of the first collaboration points, right, of the first collaborative was yeah. fuels reduction. And then you get into sort of the last 20 years where we've seen, you know— uh, Huge upswing and, you know, catastrophic wildfires throughout mm-hmm. the West. I mean, you look at those fire maps during the summer now, and it's like the entire West Coast is just one big, you know, mm-hmm. each little fire is one little tiny flame. But you look at it in aggregate, and the whole thing looks like a giant flame. Yeah. Um, and that, that of course, has become much more top of mind. It's always been there, but yeah. it's really been in the past 10, 20 years that that's been, become sort of a front and center notion of getting into the forest and cutting. Um there's a lot of debate about the fire science. Uh, but if you want to go back a little bit farther into the history, like people like Sean Keogh, for instance, um, will say and, and did say to me, I don't know if I made it into the article or not, but she did uh, suggest to me, he's like, look, I mean, during that period of the 90s when we had you know Dwyer's decision that was locking up all this land, um, it wasn't like Mother Nature stood still mm-hmm. during that time. Just because people aren't out there doing projects and it's not under you know, any, any sort of project um, doesn't mean that trees aren't falling down, you know, trees aren't dying, mm-hmm. that this kind of stuff isn't building up in the forest. Um, and there's an argument that a lot of people make. I don't know that, that Keo necessarily would make this herself, but there is an argument that exists out there that during that period when we let the forest, let the forest, you know, quote unquote, <laughs> mm-hmm. when, the, when, when timber cutting was in, relatively inactive in a lot of these places, it built up a reserve of fuel, that has therefore come back to bite us. Yeah. And it's incumbent upon everybody from the management side to the conservation side to make pathways to reduce that fuel load. Mm -hmm. And there are people who disagree with that, who say that that's not, that's bunk science. That's true. That forests do better when they burn naturally. And then therefore, you know, the fuels that accumulate after the fire are, you know, better suited to the environment that that forest is going to be ultimately healthier because it's following, you know, natural processes yeah. as opposed to forests that go in and get sort of parked out. Um, so, I mean, I didn't get into all that because that's an entirely other argument. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a whole other thing. It'd and, be another and, series of articles. It I would think. be a very long series and a very controversial one because, again, there I mean, there is a general consensus mm-hmm. that getting into the forests, whether they be public or privately owned, I mean, even your own backyard, I mean... The, fire officials are always saying like, go clear your brush away from mm-hmm. your house. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a general consensus that, you know, thinning and selective harvesting to reduce fuel loads does hold back forest fires. And that that's a place where industry and conservation can collaborate because the effects of a catastrophic wildfire benefit. No one <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and no thing. Uh-huh. Um, no, those kinds of fires do not uh, operate on, you know, what we would consider to be a natural cycle or rhythm. Um, I mean, they burn through and just destroy everything. Yeah. (laughs) So no one wants to see those fires, but how we achieve, um, a compromise or a collaboration or some kind of policy or a procedure that stops them is, you know, the trillion dollar question. Yeah. And I don't know that there's full agreement on that. And that may well be one of those fronts that, you know, continues the conflict, Mm -hmm. uh, going forward is, how how do we avoid these catastrophic wildfires? And then some people will say, "Well, it's climate change that's doing it." Mm-hmm. And so there's other things we have to do beyond getting in there, out there and thinning the forests. Like there are much larger things need to happen, structural things, society mm-hmm. level things need yeah. to happen. So it, it becomes really sticky. And in many ways, this story doesn't touch that because that is our contemporary reality. Yeah. This is about trying to figure out how we went from, you know, this place of conflict which yeah. goes even before the timber wars was mm-hmm. all the way back to the you know 1800s how we got from that to this notion in sort of the early uh, 2000s where collaboration is something that people are more uh, keen to try than they are conflict yeah now the the places they collaborate on going forward are going to be stuff like fo- uh, forest fires mm-hmm. stuff like um, recreation yeah uh, or recreation as some people might call it you know like w r the w yeah <laughs> Uh Uh, So those are things, those are potentially future fronts for more conflict or Mm -hmm. more collaboration. Again, we have collaboration if we can keep it. Yeah. And it it requires the people involved, the people who are willing to enter that often painful, laborious, um, unpleasant process. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's going to be incumbent upon them to find collaborative solutions to these things rather than return us to a place of conflict. And as we've seen throughout this series, there are periods throughout our history going back more than 130 years, 150 years, mm-hmm. where we have been very collaborative in our approach. And we also have been very conflict oriented. Yeah. <laughs> so there's nothing saying that we won't go back to those bad old days. But now, out of all that, you know, we, we do have these tools and we do have this willingness and a political will um, to engage in these collaborative methods, um, you know, when and where we find willing partners who are operating on good faith. And that's also critical. Yeah,
1: uh, the good faith approach. Yeah, I want to jump right to my last kind of question for you. You've done you've been researching this now for months. Uh, you have written what appears to be your final article on the subject for now. Anyway, I'm, I'm sure it'll appear in your uh, work going forward at some point. But anyway, um, I'm not going to ask you, you know, what have you learned? Because I know you've learned a great deal in, in your research, but has your perspective uh, looking at uh, forest management, looking at the uh, the whole big picture, has your perspective on it changed with what you've learned? Have you have you come to any new kind of truths about uh, what you know what what we should be doing out there that uh, that you maybe didn't hold before, or that you know what what's important uh, in this in this fight
0: that has uh, been illuminated to you? Yeah, I I started researching this about a year ago, actually. Mm-hmm. I was thinking back on it the other day that I remember th- around Thanksgiving 2021, I was freaked out because I had this project that I mm-hmm. needed to get working on, and I, I was a little, I felt behind. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of trying to start poking around about this around Thanksgiving. So it's been about a year, and yeah. when I tallied it up, it's more than 20,000 words, um, which is... A, a novella, yeah, um, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's about 40% of the length of my master's thesis in, in, in history. Wow, yeah. um, so I, I wrote 40% of a master's thesis on this over the past year, yeah. And just like in my master's thesis, um, as a historian, you know, I'm always trying to find change over time, looking at, um, you know, where's the continuity, where's the change, um. And as with everything I've ever done historically, I have come away from the project at the end feeling like it's much more complicated than I ever imagined. Mm. And where I thought I might have understood issues in a clear way, I feel even less certain mm. about you know, certain aspects of it. What I do think is really profoundly interesting to me anyway, is how much continuity there really is. Like all human beings, I, I tried to... Well, like all human beings, I sort of defaulted to a linear view of of what I was going to be writing about. I thought that was going to be a, a beginning point. Like, here's here's my point A. You know, things are bad in the old days. Mm-hmm. And then here's a point B. You know, things are better today. Yeah. And, you know, the, the title of the piece itself, the series itself, sort of lends itself to that that kind of stadial, um, you know, upward trajectory, right? Yeah. From... The Timber Wars Two Collaboration. I mean, yeah. it sort of presupposes that there's a bad time and then a good time. And how mm-hmm. did we get between them? And as I approached it and started looking directly at the Timber Wars, I was like, no, 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 no. We can't start there. We have to go back. The Timber Wars started somewhere in the in the past. Mm-hmm. And that kept pushing me further and further back into the 1800s. And I start reading these old newspaper articles, which personally was probably my favorite part of the project, was getting to read all that historic material um, was that a lot of the things they were saying back in the 1800s and into the 1920s and thirties are the same things that we're saying today. I expected to see a lot more change rather than continuity mm-hmm. in that. I mean, you, you see the arguments about, you know, the East coast liberal elite coming in here and telling us what to do like that. I mean, that was in the newspaper articles in like 1910, mm-hmm. um, you know you start seeing the arguments like well the feds need to give us our land back in the yeah. 1950s and then you see uh you know people saying that you know we got to we got to build america we have to you know use our resources to build the greatness of our country you know and all this kind of thing and we still still hear that today you know uh, mm-hmm. conservation be damned environmentalism be damned um it's growth we need you know stuff like that yeah. it's just you know the conversation has been Operating on a lot of the same themes for more than a century Mm. and charting how that conversation was, was applied and when it was applied and how it was connected to much broader themes was really interesting to me because I don't know about other people, but I tend to think about sort of natural resources and, you know, land management as its own sort of siloed area of knowledge, you know, of expertise and Mm. and of policy. Um, But it's not, it's, I mean, it is the policy of the country. That's maybe that's one insight that I kind of came to is how critical these land management notions are to the entire fabric of the national dialogue. These issues are so complex because the country is that complex and the country is that complex because the number one resource it has is land. I mean, if it's one thing that typifies the United States is it's land and it's always been that. And so for us to think about land management and, um, and conservation and also sort of resource uh, extraction as this own, their own little sort of side part of politics, I think we do that at the risk of losing sight of just how central that is. And people tend to get kind of bleary-eyed you know, or glass-over when we start talking about you know, all these acronyms. And these acts and these policies and these studies and they get, they just glaze over. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got 6,000 acre clear cuts (laughs) and they wonder what's going on here. And then, and then somebody grabs that football and runs with it and turns it into a, you know, big conspiracy theory about how we need to have a standoff at, you know, a bird sanctuary, um, you know, because the Bureau of Land Management has no rights to tell me where to graze my cattle. Yeah. Uh, And then, you know, that's how we get these sort of political flashpoints is by people sort of average citizens not thinking that these issues are as vitally important as they actually are and how intrinsic they are to our national identity. I mean, that was really front and center back in that period of the of 20s, 30s, and 40s, now, which I didn't realize, mm-hmm. is how central uh, you know, the United States landscape was to its identity. Mm-hmm. And those were critical years for you know, the creation of, of a national identity. You know, twenties through the forties, mm-hmm. um, and the Civilian Conservation Corps, and just how impactful that really was on a philosophical level, if not on a you know a physical on the ground level, um, bringing the nation together. You know, after the Depression, and really how a lot of the politics of the Civil War extended themselves even into those first half century in the twentieth century. There was still this feeling that we needed to unite the sections of the United States, mm-hmm. and we did that through our public lands, and then how those public lands were then to be administered became, you know, a, a central part of our national conversation. And I was surprised by the big names that got drawn into this stuff. I mean, you've got, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, critically mm-hmm. important to him, this issue. You know, you've got Gifford Pinchot, very important to him. You we know, got you know, Ehlers um, Koch and we've got, you know, Bob Marshall and we've got, you know, Franklin Roosevelt and we have, you know, Frank Church and William yeah. Bora and, like, all these big, big names, you know. That you start getting into these sort of specialist sort of subjects and you think you're going to spend all your time with no-name academics or whatever. Yeah. And not not to say that, you know, there's such a thing as no-name academics. I mean, but I'm just saying, like, this this big cast of characters with these huge personalities, yeah. you realize how deeply involved they were in this stuff. Yeah. Um, and that just bespeaks, you know, how... How important it is. And so I, I came away from the project really getting a, a new appreciation for, for the vitality of the conversation and really why there, the vitality of it, it speaks a lot to why there was so much conflict around it and why it's so important that, you know, people do everything they can to avoid uh, descending into that unproductive quagmire of mm-hmm. conflict. Now, I don't have any policy recommendation to make. I mean, I, <laughs> that's, that's above my pay grade. Uh-huh. Um, but, I, I mean, again, it's just, it's much more complicated than I ever thought it was. And, um, and also much more important. And maybe that's, that's the thing is like, you know, the more important things are, the more complex they are if you really dig into them. Yeah. And a better conversation about them should be more complex. That seems like a fine place to
1: leave it. Thank you for listening to Your Wild Place, a podcast presented by Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness. For more information about the Friends, visit our website, scotchmanpeaks.org. This episode featured Zach Hagedon, Editor-in-Chief of the Sandpoint Reader. You can find the complete series conservation from the timber wars to collaboration available to read online at sandpointreader.com the music for your wild place is by ben olson and katie archer this episode was recorded and edited by me jack peterson subscribe to your wild place wherever you listen to podcasts better yet give your wild place a like and review